the winds of change may be blowing into Philadelphia. Is it time to call up prospects like Nick Williams and Scott Kingery? We'll talk more about that. Also, we'll talk with Mitchell Nathanson about Dick Allen, one of the more misunderstood Philly superstars of all time and a great rookie on his own right. Also, it's Father's Day weekend. Maybe you should enjoy a Phillies game, Dad. In 2020. Welcome to the Phillies Nation Podcast. Yo, Phillies Nation. Welcome to the Phillies Nation Podcast. This is episode number 12. I am Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com. You can go there for all your news, information, opinion, much more about the Philadelphia Phillies. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. Twitter, we're at philliesnation there. And on Instagram, at philliesnation underscore. You can find the Phillies Nation podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. You can go to iTunes and uh, check us out. Subscribe, rate the podcast if you can. Give us as many stars as you see fit. Five are awesome. So please do that if you can. And uh, if you have music for the show... I've been saying this every week, you know, if you have any music that you want to contribute, whether it's for the theme song or for the bumper music, then between segments, we'd love to have it on the podcast. So just shout at me at Twitter. You could do it at my Twitter at Timothy Malcolm or at the Phillies Nation Twitter or email me at Tim at PhilliesNation.com. Love to get your music on the podcast. It'd be great to have fans chipping in and contributing themselves. The podcast today, we have Mitchell Nathanson on. He is a historian who's written about the Phillies, a number of books. One of his more recent books was about Dick Allen, and we talked to him about uh, one of the greatest and most interesting superstars in Philadelphia Phillies history, who was, of course, an integral part of the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies team that nearly made the postseason, the World Series, that is, and did not because they choked in the final week of the year. But we talked more about Allen's sort of career and how it uh, sort of is an interesting, I want to say Allen's career is sort of an interesting sort of tale of how Philadelphia sort of um, looked at itself in the 1960s and 70s and how times had changed very quickly from when Allen started playing in Philadelphia to when he came back for the Phillies in 1975 and how different things were in the city just in that nine-year period. Uh, we talked. I talked to Mitchell about that. Really good conversation about Dick Allen. And I talked with him because it is Father's Day week. And my dad was a fan of Dick Allen and the 1964 Phillies. He grew up with that team uh, as one of uh, probably the most important years of his baseball following life. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about really older Phillies history. History that my dad and I think if you're listening, your dad might... Uh, be interested in himself. Uh, so I thought this would be a really good week for that kind of conversation. I also talked with Corey Sharp. He's on the show later on today from philliesnation.com. We're going to talk about dads and baseball and sort of our favorite dad stories. And uh, he'll talk also a little bit from a couple more minutes or so about the current team and how uh, things are going so well for a number of veterans that the Phillies, of course, picked up. Michael Saunders, uh, Jeremy Hellickson having an up and down year. And if the Phillies could get some sort of reward for those guys at this point this year. And we talked a little bit about Scott Kingery, the Phillies Nation 
trip to Reading to see the fight and fills was a success on Sunday. The Reading fight and fills won with a really late comeback, and Scott Kingery had a home run, his 18th of the year. He now leads all minor league baseball with those 18 homers. And the question I positioned to Corey was, when are we going to see Scott Kingery in AAA? Because he is obviously at the point where probably he's hitting too well for AA. Is it time for him to go to Lehigh Valley? I certainly think it is. We talked with Corey about that. He's followed Scott this year, and he talked to Scott before. Uh, He has some good insight on that. But I think it's about time for guys to start getting their feet wet in new grounds, right? Scott Kingery playing really well in Reading, and it's probably time for him to go to Lehigh Valley. But guys in Lehigh Valley who are playing very well this year, Nick Williams is the one who really is kind of showing himself in the spotlight. He's now up to about a 280 average or so. He has, I think, 13 or 14 home runs this season. He's been outstanding, especially in the past month and a half. And after a spring training where he really showed the Phillies that he can play really good outfield, he's versatile out there, and he did show some really good offensive capability in spring training, I think it's time for Nick to really get the call and show us what he can do on a regular, everyday level. And if you're the Phillies, why not? You know, right now, Aaron Altair obviously having a great season in one of the corner positions, but the other one is being wasted. And Michael Saunders has not played well at all this year. He basically was relegated to a backup role with Howie Kendrick playing so well, but now Kendrick is going to be playing second base because Cesar Hernandez is on the DL with an oblique strain. So it's kind of a chance for the Phillies to bring someone into the fold and give him everyday innings. And what happens if Nick Williams plays really well and decides that, oh, he should be in the majors for good? Well, then they can figure that out. You know, they can have an outfield of Altair, Williams, and Odubel Herrera and decide that Howie Kendrick is maybe trade bait. Maybe they get something small for him. They only got him in a trade with the Dodgers, and they only had to trade Darnell Sweeney and Darren Ruff. By the way, both of those guys are not anything that is... They're not making any waves in L.A. anymore. I mean, they're not even with the organization, basically, at this point. They're not doing anything. It's not like the Phillies gave up a lot for Howie Kendrick. So I think it's really a good chance for the Phillies to bring in someone who has made his presence felt in, in the minor leagues, and why not? Nick Williams has played really well. Let's do it. Let's let's make that happen. I think they thought it would have been Roman Quinn. Quinn, of course, got hurt last week. Uh, his elbow injury seems to be more serious than the Phillies would like, and he would like, obviously, and he's getting a second opinion from Dr. James Andrews. Anytime you see Dr. James Andrews in an opinion, that's not good news for anybody. So it seems like Roman might be out for a little bit longer than the Phillies I would love, and really anyone would love. I mean, it seems like he might be out for much longer than the requisite week or so, uh, two weeks or so. So that's a big blow. And Quinn, I think, could have been the first person up, and now it seems like he might be done for a little bit longer than that. So it's Nick Williams, right? Dylan Cousins has had a pretty good last couple weeks here in Lehigh Valley, but he's cooled off in the last couple weeks as well. So he's up and down, and, and he's not necessarily... Uh, doing a consistent thing. He still has the same problems with lefties that he did last year. So if there's anybody who really deserves it, it's Nick Williams. And I think it's time for the Phillies to give somebody that look. And I think Williams is the guy. I mean, nobody else in Lehigh Valley seems to be worth it. Alfaro needs a full year. J.P. Crawford clearly is not putting himself in a position to be in the major leagues right now. And nobody else has really stepped up to the plate. I mean, Reese Hoskins obviously has, but Tommy Joseph is blocking him. And I think there has to be a trade made before we get Reese Hoskins in Philadelphia. So right now, it seems to be Nick Williams or bust. And if the Phillies want to shake some things up, which I think they need to at the major league level, they should bring up Nick Williams.
Now I have with me Corey Sharp of philliesnation.com who was part of the cohort of people who went to First Energy Stadium on Sunday to watch the Reading Fightin' Phils defeat, what is it, the Hartford Yard Dogs, I think it is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. How was the game on Sunday? We we hosted a, a, a game that we hosted kind of a group outing at, in Reading. How was the game? It was good. It was good. It was definitely um, a, lot, a lot of people showed up. Um, both to, to our our event and just the ballpark as a whole, it was pretty filled, um, and and they put on a show uh, last night. So so they won. I think it was like seven to three or something like that uh, was the final. And uh, our man Scott Kingery hit his minor league leading 18th home run of the year. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. So, so you've seen him now before, and you've talked to him before. You know anything different about seeing him on Sunday? Um, do you think he's ready to go here for for a promotion to AAA? Do you think he needs more time in AA? Where do you think he's at? No, nah, I mean I, I don't think he has anything left to prove in AA. It was pretty amazing, actually. His first at bat, he uh, he hit a ground ball, and I wouldn't even say it was deep in the hole, and he hit it hard. It was a one hopper, and the, and the shortstop had to. So he had a backhand it, but but he beat it out, hmm. and he, it was it was honestly really really amazing. Yeah, you know, he just flies up the line. Yeah, I, I think I think people kind of forget about him that you know with all the power he's been putting on this year, he does have some really good speed, and he could really be a top of the lineup difference maker for a team. Oh yeah, he has 55 runs scored and and 13 stolen bases so far. So yeah, he he can really as of right now he looks to be a five tool player. I don't know if he can. If he can take that with him to at least the major league level, uh, that'll we'll have to wait and see for that. But he certainly yeah. looks very comfortable in, in Double A, and I, I think within the next, no later than July first, um, I would say, okay. for him to be in, in Lehigh Valley. Well, you said the major league level right now, uh, the second base situation at the major league level is sort of in flux. Cesar Hernandez is now on the DL with an oblique injury, and he actually has been playing so well over the last month or so. His average is a 277, which is fine, but his on-base percentage is now down to 336. He's really silently uh, sort of uh, regressed over the past month or so. And with his injury, there was a lot of talk on whether maybe King Greek could be aggressively called up. Instead, they're going to go with Howie Kendrick for the time being, who's been playing very well since he's been brought back. Um, but, Corey, I ask you, with Cesar, yeah, he's been performing a little bit rough lately. What's his future, do you think, here? Do you think Cesar gets a chance when he comes back from this injury to kind of be part of the future of this franchise, or do you think he's trade bait? Um, I mean, I, I definitely think he's trade bait, but, but you know me. I'm a, I'm a Cesar guy, and you know, I wrote a piece on him very early in the year. Um, what I, I think you, you can do is I don't know if the Phillies will be ready to win next year either. I would start to put some pressure on Franco, you know, put his back against the wall a little bit. Um, especially if Kingry, if he doesn't reach uh, the majors this year, I think next year you can look at him as your starting second baseman and 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 play Hernandez as a third base at least just for next year. Um, you know, I think it'll, like I said, it'll sp- uh, put a fire under Franco, and yeah. that way you're, you're still. I, I think Hernandez is a really good player, and you, you that way. It- I, you know, that way you're still utilizing him with Kingry. And if they're not ready to win next year, yeah, so so what? That he doesn't have power at the third base position. I don't think that's as important. You know, but, at but, least 
You ability. think Cesar's glove can stick at third base? I think so. I, I think he, he's. Yeah, I don't think he would hurt them there at all. Um, yeah, he's got a, a you know a, an average arm, and yeah, I, I think he he could play well there. Well, Franco's numbers this year have been absolutely putrid, uh, as we've been seeing this year. His OBP is down about 260 or so. Uh, his weighted OPS was 59 going into Sunday, so that's just absolutely atrocious. You can't have that on a regular everyday player. Uh, let's talk about some of the other players, though, who the Phillies had kind of hoped we'd see them maybe move them at the deadline for some smaller parts, value, young value. Michael Saunders, for one, who also has been struggling this year. Uh, he's only hitting around 205 or so. Uh, his OBP is a 255. I mean, he's not very good. Do you think they get anything out of Michael Saunders at this point? I don't think so. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who would want him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's a shame because he, you know, got a pretty team-friendly contract for someone who had a really good first half last year for Toronto and made the All-Star team. But yeah, that contract at this point now kind of looks not like an albatross, but it's definitely something that the Phillies. I don't know if they can move it at this point. You kind of have to live with Saunders for the rest of the year. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, he does have an option for next year, so right. uh, the Phillies will probably have to eat a lot of his money this year. And right. yeah. I mean, I would assume that the Phillies, if Saunders continues to play this poorly, that they'd probably not exercise that option and just let Saunders go. But there, there's a part of me that thinks if his value is that bad, why not just ride it out a little bit next year and see if you get some value out of him, and then maybe you can flip him for someone. I, I don't know. But that's – if we're worrying about that in June of next year, we have more problems. But uh, Pat Neshek has pitched very well for the Phillies this year. His ERA is under one. Uh, he's been absolutely wonderful with strikeout-to-walk ratio, somewhere around 5-1. to one. Uh, What do you think he could get the Phillies in a trade? Um, I, I think he can get you pro- probably one, uh, you know, a lower-level double-A guy. You know, I, I w- went back, and, and Jonathan Papelbon, who was on his way out the door in July of 2015, they, they yeah. got Nick Pavetta for him. I mean, that's... Yeah. You know, I'm not. I don't. Obviously, we don't know Nick Pavetta being a major league player, but I mean, the potential is through, through the roof with him, and he, he's very highly touted now in the Philly system. And also, even Ken Giles, um, you know, who is a lot younger than Nishak was when he was traded. But the Phillies got Eshelman, Tom Eshelman, mm-hmm. and Velasquez. So I think they can get a, a pretty, yeah, at least one or two guys for him. Probably most likely one. Um, for Nishak, uh, so that, that's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, Nishak, you know, he's got a very friendly contract right now, and the Phillies can move that easily. Papelbon had a much more uh, heavy contract that they couldn't really move around, but the Nationals needed bullpen help, so they were they aided. They didn't need the contract, but they, they gave the Phillies a decent prospect for him. But, yeah, I think you're that right. Think Nish- other landing spot for him, too, is Washington. Yeah, Washington, Washington's definitely a landing spot for any reliever right now. They right. need some bullpen help. And then finally, Jeremy Hellickson, who's been having an up-and-down year. His ERA is under five, which, you know, I think any Philly pitcher will take an ERA under five right now. Um, do you think that he gets to a team that's looking for maybe a back-end starter who can kind of stabilize a rotation? Do you think he has any kind of value? Um, uh, I, I think he does. Um, he, he's been around the block. You know, you know, he, he is struggling right now. But I think, you know, last year he really probably was the Phillies' best pitcher. In, in April he was this year. So, I mean, he, he's shown what he can do. Um, and he still has, has obviously just about two months left to kind of 
uh, boost his value a little bit. But yeah, I definitely think a guy like him, relative to position, has a lot more value. Uh, you can haul more than Michael Saunders can. can. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Halkson definitely has some value still in the tank, and he can, you know, kind of get a couple really good starts under his belt and maybe get a couple teams interested sometime around mid-July. That's very possible. Uh, I think at this point, if you're the Phillies, you're just looking for anything. Uh, you know, the veterans aren't really doing much, and if you can flip them for even small parts that maybe you can batch the small parts later on for something bigger, that would definitely help them because they're looking for – a couple players, you know, at this point, who could be real difference makers in this franchise. They don't have them. Hopefully they'll get them at some point. But, uh, Corey, we'll talk to you a little bit later on in the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. In Philly's history, one of the more interesting threads is that of Dick Allen, who obviously is someone that a lot of us in Philadelphia and across the baseball world wonder whether he should be in the Hall of Fame or not, and that's always been a long-standing campaign. I have the writer of a recent book, God Almighty Himself, which came out last year, Mitchell Nathanson. He is a Philadelphia-area-based writer, a, a professor at the University of Villanova, to talk a little bit about Dick Allen. Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first off, before we get into the Dick Allen talk, just tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, you're a professor at the University of Villanova. You do law there, correct? Yeah, yeah. I teach uh, legal writing generally, um, and I do a lot of little sports law as well. So um, this kind of uh, falls right into my uh, my sweet spot. So how did you – what interested you into writing, uh, sort of diving into the history and researching the history of Philadelphia baseball and the Phillies? Uh well, I mean, I grew up in Central Jersey, so I always. I mean, when I grew up in in the seventies in my neighborhood in Trenton, uh, we our neighborhood was pretty much split down the middle um, between New York uh, and Philadelphia fans. We got the New York stations and the Philadelphia stations, and in the mid seventies, the Phillies were better than the Mets. So and nobody was rooting for the Yankees, or I was I wasn't rooting for the Yankees. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I became a Phillies fan. So I've I've always been a Phillies fan, and so that really led to my interest later on in in writing about them. And so I wrote a book about the relationship between the city of Philadelphia and its and, and the Phillies. Uh, and then out of that came really the Dick Allen book uh, last year. Isn't it wacky uh, when you live in that sort of border area? I once worked at a newspaper in Connecticut. And it was right before the Phillies-Yankee World Series, and we were kind of looking at – this was actually – I was working at a paper in New York, and we were looking at the boundary between Yankee fans and Philly fans and where New Jersey it actually was. Um, it's, it's funny because you – I guess you have a choice at that point when you live in a place like that. I can go here or there, and it's basically what team is better. That's typically how it works, I guess, right? Yeah, pretty much, although I have to say that there, there, there really was a street. On, on, and on one side of the street, they were all New York fans, and on the other side of the street, we were all Philadelphia fans. I don't know why that street was the boundary, but it was. Um, I don't know, maybe because one strong personality lived on one side of the street and was a Phillies fan, and we all followed that person. I don't know. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so what what got you into Dick Allen? Because uh, I think he's a little bit – just a, a slight before your time, uh, but what, what was interesting about him for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm generally agnostic when it comes to Allen uh, in terms of, you know, I, I didn't see him when he played in the 60s. I saw him in the 70s when he came back. Uh, and, and, you know, when he came back in the 70s, he was pretty much a shot player. 
And but I, I do remember there was a lot of commotion surrounding his return, and so I, I was a huge baseball fan, and so I, I knew who Dick Allen was, um, but I didn't understand why all the commotion was being made. Um, I knew he was controversial, but that was about it. Um, and then I got older, I learned a little bit more about him. But then when I wrote that book about um, the uh, Phillies in the city of Philadelphia, there was a couple of pages in there I, I focused on Allen, but not that much. And I really just focused on what I understood the basic story to be, which was he was a great player, had a lot of ability, but he was very controversial. And then he kind of got booed out of town and then came back. And so I wrote that. And I didn't think that was really all that controversial or anything, but I got more feedback on those couple of pages from people who were telling me, you do not understand the mm. Dick Allen story. You don't really get it. Um, and these are people on both sides of, this, of the argument. Some people were saying, you don't understand him. You were too nice to him. Um, he was a real jerk. Other people were saying you you vilified him, and he really was a victim here of a lot of awful things. So it was interesting that I, I didn't really think I was doing either, but apparently it was being interpreted either way. And yeah. so I realized – I think there's a lot more here than I think there is. So I was interested in just on my own, first of all, figuring out what was I missing. And then as I was getting into it, I realized, gee, there's a lot here, um, and I was surprised that there was no biography of Alan. Yeah. So I figured, well, I'll write it. So that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, writing a book, you wrote a book about the 1977 Phillies back in 2008. And that book, I mean, I, I'd be I'd surprised that you didn't have more, I guess, about Alan uh, in that. But you, again, you, as you said, you were sort of early on, you were kind of more focusing on the, the city and the, and the team in 77. Um, but the racial sort of breakdown of Philadelphia in, in 1977, and let's be honest, the racial breakdown in Philadelphia today, we can get more into that if we want. But, um, you know, looking into sort of that back and forth and the different sides and how neighborhoods were split up and, and how tensions sort of way, you know, they ebbed and flowed in that era. Um, Dick Allen, I think, had a lot to do with that for a lot of people. He was sort of a symbol for people in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, Philadelphia, well, the one thing I learned from that earlier book, that 77 book, really, I mean, 77 was like the, the focal point. Of, that was the narrative thread, but really it was more of a, of a history of the relationship between the city and the sports teams. One thing I learned about when I was doing that book was that Philadelphia was actually a pretty integrated city hmm. um, up until World War II. Um, in fact, I think if you look, just look at the census numbers, it was the most integrated big city in America. Um, until you get to World War II, and after World War II, that changed, and um, and and that changed because of urban renewal, and and you know everybody knows that story um, happened in New York, and it happened in Philadelphia and Boston, and a lot of places where um, a lot of the lower income people were pushed out to make way for um, buildings and and things for for white people, and so you you ended up with these concentrated ghettos, which you didn't have in Philadelphia, you had in other cities, but you didn't have them to that extent in Philadelphia, but by the time Allen shows up in sixty three sixty four. Now you've got real concentrated areas of uh, that, that, are, that are primarily black, primarily white, uh, and primarily – some are primarily Irish, some are primarily Polish, German, Jewish, whatever. And so now you start to get a lot more tension because you don't have the integration that really 20 years earlier you had some of at least. Mm -hmm. I mean it wasn't I'm – not, I'm not trying to say that Philadelphia was some sort of racial oasis. It certainly wasn't. Anybody knows the Jackie Robinson story and what happened when he came to Philadelphia knows that. Um, but, but Philadelphia was not abnormally racist for that era. Um, 
but you get to the early 60s and there, things had changed a lot in Philadelphia. And, and, and you're right. When Allen shows up, there, there are a lot of people on both sides of the fence who see in Allen a lot of what's either wrong with the city or what could be right with the city. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and and Connie Mack Stadium, where he played, was sort of a weird center of that universe. Uh, you know, being in, in North Philly, in in a place where obviously today it's a it's a very black neighborhood uh, and a, quite a bit Hispanic as well. But there was that also that old white you know traditional uh, residency that's there in that area as well. Talk about Connie Mack Stadium of that era and what just going to the ballpark was like and sort of the environment of of going to a Phillies game then. Right. Now, Connie Mack Stadium, that area is, is exactly what I was talking about. It used to be an area where it was pretty mixed, um, not not house by house, but street by street. Um, and you would have um, – there was there was a, some uh, Irish and Germans and Jews and Polish and, and African-American. Uh, and, and there were, again, not house by house, but street by street. Uh, um, but by the time Allen shows up, the area is primarily uh, a black area. And, um, you know, when the Phillies play, it's interesting because most of the most Phillies fans were white. And so what you had was a lot of white people trucking in from the suburbs, a lot of people who lived in the city, by the way. And remember, this is the first generation of um, the the, white flight to suburbia. These are the actual people who physically lived in the city who moved. Yeah. And, And and so they. This is not an abstract concept for them. They lived in the city. They moved, uh, and now they come back into the city, and they see a different city, um, and they're parking sometimes in their old neighborhoods, but you know, in the city, uh, which has changed a lot in the last 15, 20 years. And so now it's a primarily black neighborhood, except when, on days when the Phillies play, mm-hmm. and a lot of white people come in, and they park their cars, and um, everybody knows the story of having to pay some kid a few dollars to wash their car, um, and there was local crime, and you know hubcaps are stolen or things like that. Um, and so it, it's an odd dynamic to go to a Phillies game in in that area during that time uh, mm-hmm. because there's just there's just so much going on sociologically um, outside before you even get to the ballpark. Now. Dick Allen comes in, you know, in 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 1964, really breaks out and has this incredible season, and the Phillies have a great season for the first 100 and you know 40 games or so, 135 games or so. Uh, but his play, you know, he was always this very, I mean, everything was done to the extreme. It seems like with him, his bat, he could hit the ball as far as anybody else in the league, uh, and yet he also behaved in the clubhouse and and in in the media and to other people you know in this sort of extreme you know gregarious sort of way at times uh what 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 was that like when you were finding out sort of what dick allen was about and and how those extremes sort of played and and you know were you surprised in finding all this out well actually he wasn't very gregarious i mean he 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 was actually pretty quiet um that doesn't mean he was always quiet but but he was he he's an extreme introvert and 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 by that i mean he's just not comfortable around crowds which is which is tough if you're a professional athlete particularly the star um and, and you know those teams other than 64 which had jim bunning but and johnny callison those teams really didn't have a lot of stars you know and, and allen was the guy uh so yeah on the field he, he i mean his bat was loud but he was generally a quiet guy right. um now 
he 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 didn't like um to be bothered uh and you know part of the responsibility of a of a ball player is to talk to the media and give the people who are writing about you um something to write about and so he didn't like that and oftentimes he he could be surly he didn't want to talk to them um although early on he did talk he just maybe he didn't talk enough but he didn't really stop talking to the press until the late 60s. Um, I, I think the issue with Allen and the media really before that point wasn't so much that he wasn't talking to them, but I, I think that the media, a lot of the – and when I say media, I mean the sports writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the sports writers, I think there was a hierarchy, and, and the hierarchy back then was, was that most of the sports writers were higher up on the food chain than the players, and and, and so – you know the sports writers. If you think about it, it, makes sense because you know the players come and go. But guys, you know uh, Ray Kelly and, um, and and you know Alan Lewis and player, play, writers like that. They're there forever, right. and they see these guys come and go. And the players aren't being paid a lot of money. The writers are making more money than all except the stars, and so they really expected deference from the players. And now here comes Alan. Who, who who isn't going to give that deference? He's not going to be nasty, but he's not going to defer. Mm-hmm. And, and and because he won't defer, he gets there's a lot of tension from the media towards him. And you know, particularly add in the racial factor that not only is this a young kid who's not deferring, it's a young black kid who's not deferring. And the old school writers, particularly Alan Lewis of the Inquirer, um, that just didn't sit well uh, with with him in particular. And so. They they took it out on him, and and anytime you know he would give them an opportunity because you know if you go back and look at the statistics he was a great hitter but he had a rough year in the field um, mm-hmm. and, and he made a lot of errors at third base yeah, they moved him, and yeah. so yeah they moved him in spring training he had never played third base before and uh, so he made a lot of errors and you know any power hitter is going to strike out a fair number of times and when guys are on base. And so if somebody's got a bone to pick with you, um, if you give them a reason to go after you, they'll go after you. And so that's, I think, I think that's what you see a lot of in 64 and, and 64 and 65. You see a lot of that, even though he is talking to them at that point, it's just, I think there is this perceived arrogance um, which really sets some of them off. So, so what what was it uh, for Dick? Why didn't he pay deference to the sports writers? Um, why why was he more sort of was it just his um, introverted nature, just general? That was it, or was there something sort of larger going on that he he really was kind of in his mind saying, I you know I don't need to talk to these guys. Well, no, he, he like I said he did talk to them, but he I'll give you a good example. Um, he he very much was always his own man, and and, and here's here's the best example of that. Um, you know, ball players. Everybody who's seen uh, Bull Durham knows that speech where um, Crash Davis is telling uh, the Nuclelouche. You know, here's how you talk to the media: you just give him a bunch of, you know, you know, I'm going to give it 110 percent, and good Lord willing, things will work out for the best. All that stuff, right? So you know, that's all ingrained in ball players. And Allen just didn't he didn't read that script. Um, so. <laughs> So, so here's the best example. So Sports Illustrated comes around in late June of 64. And remember, the Phillies are f- running away with it. 
they're in first place. They look like nobody's gonna nobody's gonna catch them. And so Sports Illustrated sends a sends a reporter out there uh, to talk to the stars. And the, the at that point it looks like Jim Bunning might be Cy Young Award winner. Uh, Callison might be MVP, and Allen looks like he's gonna be Rookie of the Year. So the reporter goes and just asks these basic you know nothing questions. Hey Jim Bunning, what would it? How would you feel to be Cy Young Award winner? And Jim Bunning gives the expected answer, which is, "Hey, it'd be great. You know, I'm just here to win as many games as I can for the team. I just, right. But it would certainly be an honor." They ask Callison, he says sort of the same thing. They ask Allen. Allen's response is, "I don't care about Rookie of the Year because I heard there's no money in it. Uh, what, you know, <laughs> I'd rather make the All Star team because Willie Mays told me that if you make the All Star team, you get a five thousand dollar bonus, <laughs> and and so." That gets printed in the in the in, in Sports Illustrated and immediately becomes a controversy. Of course, yeah. Um, and the and, and people think that people booed Allen um, not until later, but in mid '64, fans start booing Allen as a result of this. And it's just again, it's a, it's like a perceived arrogance. Um, yeah. And maybe you know you could say there's some arrogance there, but look at it from the other side. These guys aren't getting paid a lot of money, right? And, and and if you look at you look at Alan's upbringing, um, you know he's raised by a single mother. Uh, his mother was basically a domestic who did whatever she could just to put food on the table. And and, and here's a guy who's go running away with a rookie. Of, looks like he's going to be rookie of the year, and he's not getting a lot of money. I mean, he got a bonus for signing. You know, he got a nice bonus for signing with the Phillies in 1960. But now he's making, you know, he's making seven thousand uh, dollars. That's his salary for 1964. Um, and so, yeah, for the way he looks at it, this is a job, and you know, I do well. I want to be paid well. I don't really care about rookie of the year because there's no money in it. Um, so I think if you look at it from that perspective, it's not that crazy. But if you're a fan, you don't look at it from that perspective. You look at it in terms of, hey, I'd love to be out there and playing. And geez, if I was playing and I was, I could be rookie of the year. I'd play for free. Yeah. Well, you know, that's probably not true. Um, <sighs> but but you all have to take into account. That these are people who are earning a living, and you know, for a guy like Allen, who was not only hyper aware of that thing, um, of that reality, he he wasn't afraid to say it. Like he was an introvert, but he wasn't mm -hmm. afraid to speak his mind. And mm -hmm. so, if you asked him a question, he'd give you an answer. And sometimes the answer wasn't the answer that I think people expected, particularly going back to 1964. And right. you know everybody kind of has this image of baseball um, back then as you know just this field of dreams kind of thing. But you know these guys are out there trying to make a living, and the ball players all thought that way, but nobody would say it. I mean, Allen was one of the only guys who would say that, and so you know rub people the wrong way. Was was Allen the first ball player and and really back black ball player? Was he the first to really? go a different way from what was expected from ball players and they're answering the media and things like that? Well, he wasn't the first, but he was probably the first superstar. I mean, before him, there was a guy named Vic Power who was in the athletics organization. And um, before that, he was in the Yankee organization. And, and, and he, he spoke his mind. The Yankees got rid of him quick. Um, <laughs> and, and he ended up with the A's and then he ended up bouncing around um, because you know, his, Vic Power's nickname was the showboat. Um, and, and really, he got that nickname only because he, he, he would speak his mind. Um, he wasn't a superstar, though. And so because he wasn't a superstar, most teams figured he's not worth the headache. 
Yeah. But Alan was a superstar, and I, I do think Alan is the first black superstar to speak his mind. Um, people, you know, he came and made he came into the major leagues after Kurt Flood, but Kurt Flood didn't really become radicalized until he was traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alan really preceded him in that in that regard. Um, so a lot of players, you know, Bob Gibson's another guy who 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 became a major leaguer before Alan, but he didn't say a lot publicly. Um, before Allen started speaking. Uh, and so I, I, I write in the book at one point that, you know, Kurt Flood may have said the words that a lot of people remember, um, but Dick Allen lived them. And, and, and so, yeah, he really – he was the first guy who was good enough to say what he wanted to say and force his – the ball club who, he, who, played, who, who paid him to have to deal with it rather than get rid of him. You met, we, we talked a little bit about the, the, the sort of the racial uh, context of Philadelphia at that time. I, I, I'm wondering because you talked a lot about how um, you know there was this expectation again, as we talked about, and fans in Philadelphia seem to have, and I might be you know talking a little bit you know for the whole city here, but fans seem to have this expectation of their superstars that they should be a certain kind of player, and we've seen it with the Jimmy Rollins booing in the past and not running out ground balls. And we've seen it with Ryan Howard and striking out. We've seen it with Mike Schmidt and not talking to the media as much as, you know, they'd want him to, or not being the sort of the leader quote unquote that, you know, fans wanted him to be. How much was Allen sort of, uh, uh, was he like sort of a foundation of that? Was he sort of the first piece of that sort of narrative that has kind of driven the city for a long time with their superstar players? Well, I, I don't I would say Del Ennis was probably before him, right? Because Del Ennis mm. was a power hitter who got booed a lot. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, a lot of people, when Allen was getting booed in the 60s and um, people were starting to talk about that, um, some writers would bring up Del Ennis and they say, well, look, this is not a racial thing, you know, because, <laughs> you know, Del Ennis got booed um, yeah. and, 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 you know, fans didn't like him either. Um, but it was really very different. Ennis and Allen were completely different. Ennis got booed. Every superstar gets booed when they strike out, you know, because you expect the superstar to hit the home run every time. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that's all that was. Allen was a whole different thing. And, and, and the people who thought Allen was like Ennis or the reaction to Allen was the same as the reaction to Del Ennis were missing the boat because – and I'll give you a good example of that. Um, in – in 64, um, there was a riot in Philadelphia in late August, and um, the Phillies were out of town. And the Phillies come back September 1st, I believe. Uh, and this is like the immediate aftermath of the riot. Now, remember, everybody remembers 64 and the collapse that you mentioned before. Um, but this, they have not started their collapse yet. They're still in first place. They still seem to be running away from, uh, from the National League. Allen is having a great year. The first game back to in, at Connie Mack Stadium after the riot, as soon as Allen pops his head out of the dugout, he gets booed, and not just by a few people. There was 12,000 people in, in the stands that night, and um, according to the sports writers who were there, um, they said the vast majority of them, 10 to 11,000 of them, were booing him. Wow. Now, why would they boo him, right? Allen had said nothing about the riot. He, yeah, he, he was about as apolitical – a ball player as you could find at that time. He would speak out, but he would speak out about things that 
related to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't speaking out about Vietnam or or anything about that civil rights or anything like that. Um, he he didn't say a lot about those things. In fact, he didn't say anything about those things at that point. And and yet they boo him, right? They boo him when he steps out of the dugout. And then he comes, uh, a ball comes to him in the first inning, and you know it's a basic ground ball. They boo him again. He comes to bat. They boo him again. Well, why are they booing him? Well, they're booing him because they see in him the symbol of the riot, right? They see a black face, and yeah. so they're booing him. Now, that is not the same as the reaction to Del Ennis. There, there, no. there is nothing. There is nothing that is comparable between those two situations other than the fact that somebody's booing. Yeah. Um, he left Philadelphia after the 1969 season and was very uh, tense at that point between him and the ownership and the city. Uh, but then he came back in 1975, sort of uh, in the beginning of the season, and you documented that quite a bit. What was the difference? Because he had a huge standing ovation in his first game back, and, and the city was you know back in love with him. What was the difference between that 1969 exit and 1975 coming back to play for the Phils? I think the big difference – People, there was a lot of things written when he, um, in his return uh, about how he had changed, and that was funny because going through all of this, researching the book, every time he went to a new city, the narrative was always the same. That Dick Allen has changed. Dick Allen is different. <laughs> the reality is Dick Allen has always been the same. You talk to Dick Allen today. He is the same guy. He is the same guy today as he was in 1964. Um, what's changed is everybody else. And, and so what happened between 69 and 75 is the earth shifted you know, sociologically, culturally, uh, and a lot of people who were so sure that they were right uh, about Dick Allen and about a lot of things in 69 started to understand that they might be on the wrong side of history. Hmm. And, and so you know, when Dick Allen comes back, uh, they, it's one thing to give a guy a standing ovation. You know, it's fine. They gave him like nine standing ovations that night. Every time. I mean, just think all the times they booed him in 64 where they, after the riot, they, they cheered him. Every time he walked out of the dugout, he got a standing ovation. He got the bat, he got a standing ovation. The ball came to him, pop-up, he caught, he got a standing ovation. And again, why? why? I, the only thing I could think of is it's really you know, it, it's a plea for forgiveness. At some point, those standing ovations say more about the people giving them than the target, right? I mean, sure. it can't possibly be that. You know, at this point, he's on the downside of his career. Um, he had a good couple of years, but he he was already starting to kind of level off a little bit. So, you know, this is not like Mike Trout showing up at age 26. You know, this <laughs> this this is Dick Allen in his mid 30s, and you know, it, it it's it says a lot more about the fans. It says a lot more about the sports writers uh, than it does about Allen. Allen was the exact same guy in 1975 as he was in 1969. He was no different. And as a matter of fact, all of these articles that um, were talking about how Dick Allen was so different, one thing that people missed when he gave a press conference um, after the game and all these articles talking about how, um, you know, how different he was. Well, what they didn't write about was that when he gave the press conference, which was like a few minutes after the game was over, he was already in the street clothes, right? He had left the game in the seventh inning. He showered. He was in the street clothes. His car keys were in his hand, right? <laughs> it, He's leaving the ballpark in about five minutes, right? <laughs> Just like before. So yeah. really, is he that different? No, he's the same guy. He's the same guy, but you know, now we're going to be a little more sympathetic towards him because we realize that, you know what, maybe it's us, not him. 
No, oh, I think you're right. You know, every cheer says more about the fans than it does about the victim or the target. Uh, and, and just as every boo, I think, you know, the, the more you boo, it kind of says more about you than it does about the target that you're booing. Um, so you said you're agnostic about Dick Allen, but I wonder where you fall in on the Hall of Fame debate. Do you think he should be a Hall of Famer? I mean, uh, weighted OPS better than Hank Aaron, you know, so many great numbers across his career. Uh, maybe didn't play as long or, or had a little bit of a, uh, you know, he brushed people the wrong way, obviously, in some places. But where do you fall in in that de- debate? I think Allen was interesting because, you know, obviously all these advanced metrics were not in vogue when he played, right? Mm-hmm. We, we basically had the baseball card stats, you know, how many home runs, how many RBIs, things like that. Allen is one of the few guys where the advanced metrics help him. So, you know, you, you, you go back and you look at a lot of guys who we thought were Hall of Famers and they're, maybe they're in the Hall of Fame. And then you, 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 you look at their advanced metrics now, right? And, and you realize hey, this guy is not as good as we thought. Mm-hmm. You know, um, take a look at Don Sutton, right? Don Sutton might be the worst Hall of Famer ever. Yeah, um, but, you know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he was around a long time. He won 300 games. He, he was, in, you know, he was, I guess he could say he's a, he was a pretty good pitcher at some point, but for a lot of years. But you look at the advanced metrics on Allen, and they make him look better than his baseball card statistics, right? I mean, like you said, his OPS plus is, is one of the highest in, in baseball history. And again, nobody was thinking OPS plus in 1968, right? Sure. But now, now we can compile those numbers and you see just how good he was. And, you know, his, his baseball card stats aren't so great um, when you look at them because they're just numbers, but you have to look at them in context. He played in a pitcher-dominated era. And he dominated that pitcher-dominated era. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I think that it, the people who were punishing Dick – there are two types of people who punish Dick Allen when it comes to the Hall of Fame. I think there are some people who say he's a bad guy, um, and I think that those people just don't understand the context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, There's no requirement that you be um, – Good citizen of the of of the decade. I mean, Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. So that's not a requirement. But so there are those people. Then there are other people who say, well, he just doesn't have the numbers. Well, okay, he doesn't have 500 home runs, and he doesn't have you know the requisite number of RBIs, whatever you want that to be. But yeah, I think we've moved beyond that now. I think, um, and, and you know, the reason he doesn't have 500 home runs is not because he didn't have enough great seasons. He had 11 great seasons. He doesn't have enough average or mediocre seasons, right? He doesn't have, yeah. those, he doesn't have those five or six years that kind of bracket the great years where, you, you know, you hit 20 to 25 home runs a year. You know, if, you had, if he had those, he'd have 500 home runs. And, and, but, so he's, if you think about it, he's being punished for his lack of mediocre seasons and not his lack of great seasons. So I think that's a weird reason to keep somebody out of the Hall of Fame. Well, there's there's still time to get him in. Uh, I, I believe he's still on the Veterans Committee. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's an odd thing because he was on the – every few years they, they screw with the, uh, the the Veterans Committee ballots, and so they used to have this golden era ballot, and he was on that, and he missed by a vote last, year, uh, last time he was up. There was some weird circumstances about that. Um, but he was, he should be up. He should have been up again, but then they changed, uh, the, the, the groupings. And now there's a, there's a modern era and a golden era. And his, his career is split right in the right middle in the of those middle. two. Right. So he, yeah. he could either be modern or 
golden era, and I think they're going to put him in the golden era, which would mean he doesn't get considered again for another three or four years. Um, rather than the modern era, I think the modern era, they, he would be considered next year. Uh, he really should be in the modern era, I think. Yeah, but it would help him, though, to be in the golden, I would think, because the modern era probably doesn't have as many superstars still in the in the Hall of Fame, correct? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess the only people in the golden era he would be up against that would have any sort of a chance would be um, Oliva and Jim Cott. I think those are probably the two guys who yeah. – Yeah. or maybe some people would say Gil Hodges. But the modern era – I don't know. I looked at the people in the modern era, and I don't – there's not a lot of players from that era who aren't already in the Hall of Fame who are better than him. If you think of players from the 70s. I think that's that era, like the 70s to like the mid-80s. Is, is there, are there that many players from that era who are not in the Hall of Fame who are good candidates? Yeah. I, can't think, I can't think of it. I mean, Bly Levin for a while was, but he got in, right? So I don't, I don't have the list in front of me, but there's not a lot. I mean, there's, it, I don't see a lot of those players getting in, which is why I thought he would be better off in the modern era because, A, it's, you know, he won his MVP in the modern era. Uh, and, you know, although... I guess people kind of really associate him with the Phillies in the 60s. Uh, but I don't know. You could go either way on that one. Um, I, I, I also think you know his health isn't great, and so just if you, if, if you want to consider him for the Hall of Fame again, I would put him in the modern era. I mean you know, Ron Santo got in after he died, and, and you know, that's, to me that's a that, – that's an injustice, right? If you were going to put the guy in, you know, and you were had the opportunity, why not do it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. That's what I would do, but nobody's asking me. So, <laughs> well, if, if if you'd like to advocate for the uh, Dick Allen Hall of Fame candidacy, you can do that, and you should start by reading Mitchell Nathanson's book, God Almighty Himself: The Life and Legacy of Dick Allen. You can find it, I'm sure, everywhere online and in a lot of bookstores in the Philadelphia area, right, Mitch? Yeah, wherever books are sold, which is uh, nowhere apparently. But uh, <laughs> yeah, now they sell them at you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I think generally has them. Um, yeah, pretty much wherever you find books, you should find this. All right, Mitchell Nathanson, thanks for coming on the Phillies Nation podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. We just talked about Dick Allen, one of the great Phillies of all time, and I know my father. Was a big uh, Dick Allen fan and a, a fan of the 1964 Phillies, and he was, I think, 12 years old when the Phillies uh, choked that year away, and that obviously broke his heart as a kid. I have Corey Sharp back with NathanPhilliesNation.com to talk about dads as Father's Day is coming up here on Sunday. Uh, Corey, you know, we talked a little bit offline about Father's Day and how your dad grew up a little bit later than my dad, and his team was the 80 Phillies. Did he ever talk to you about the 80 Phillies or, you know, kind of being a Phillies fan in those glory days? Oh, yeah. He um, you know, he went to all the games. You know, he was, I think, 17 or 18, and, you know, he went to all the games. And he also, he always would tell me that he, he would always sneak into the games, you know, through, I forget what fence he told me at the vet, <laughs> but he would climb the fence and, and sometimes he said the security guards would chase him all, all game long. <laughs> but, um, it was just a, it was a different world back then, yeah. obviously. But you know he yeah so yeah one of the biggest Phillies fans you know there is just like everybody else. Yeah, I I, I love how I love how when you're you know we're talking about people growing up 30 years ago and being able to climb fences and break into things. 
just it, you just can't do that now. We we, we weren't able. To, I I mean, I grew up. I went to the vet as a kid, and I didn't. I couldn't break into the vet. You know, I mean, they would sometimes let us in for free just because we were coming in like the fourth inning and whatever. But you know, there was no uh, no hijinks to get into the stadium at that time. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so, so what, when did your dad kind of introduce you to the Phillies? When, you know, how, how did that happen with, with him and you? Um, man, I, I don't, I probably don't even remember. Um, you know, ever since I was probably two or three years old, you know, he was, he was underhanding me the wiffle ball and I, I was hitting the ball. And I probably, I think, honestly, I don't remember, but I think I, I was at my first game I was four or five years old. And, um, you know, from that point on, you know, the, the rest is history. But, yeah, probably, I don't even remember, to be honest with you, what, you know, when uh, I was introduced to it. But, yeah, I was four or five years old when I went to my first game. Well, so you, you gave me a good story about uh, a game that you and your dad went to with uh, Roger Clemens on the mound for the Houston Astros. Uh, yeah. What, what, what was that about? Oh, well, so that was that was in, I, I don't remember the exact, it was 05 or 06 when the Phillies, when they were, um, you know, threatening for a wild card spot. And they were they were perpetually playing the Astros for that last wild card spot or whatever it was, and always losing to them. Right, right. It was in it was in mid September, and uh, I just started school, and uh, I, I was having trouble with uh, you know I was having trouble because I wasn't doing my homework all the time. I was telling I would keep telling my parents I would do it, and then <laughs> and I wouldn't. I didn't do it for whatever reason. So then you know I got a call home from the teacher called my house so you know i was kind of was put on notice you know for a week or two thereafter and so then i found out i got you know my dad got tickets through my uncle you know 10 rows on the third base side roger clemens is pitching you know he asked me to go so the day when he when we were about to leave he said do you have all of your homework done you know because you know what what's been happening the past couple weeks and i said yes i have it all done it's complete whatever so we left, we went to the game, and I didn't do all my homework, <laughs> and I knew that. So my mom, she checked my homework book, you know, where I wrote all my homework, and saw I didn't do two or three things. So she calls my dad and says, Corey didn't do this and that, and he said he did. So, of course, I, I wasn't, I was kind of in a little bit of trouble. So that was, it was the first or second inning when she called, and, of course, my dad, you know, it's Roger Clemens on the mound. Yeah. So it took him, I think, he said it took him about two innings to decide. And in the fourth inning, he slapped my leg and said, let's go, we're leaving. <laughs> and, and I didn't hear the end of it uh, for the ride home for the next week. Oh, but man. I'll tell you what, it, it, I never forgot to do my homework again. So yeah, that's it, man. That's it. I thank you for that. And, um, you know, so we sacrificed the night of Roger Clemens you know, to, to teach me a lesson. So that's, that's a pretty cool Father's Day story for you. Yeah, and, and that's a good dad, really. I mean, someone who's looking out for your best interest, you know, more than just, uh, you know, wanting to see a good baseball game. I mean, as much as we want to see him. But uh, I never had the homework problems that you did. I always did my homework, and I'm not trying to brag. It's just I always did my homework. <laughs> but, right. um, but uh, yeah, my dad, he took me to as many games as possible uh, in my, growing up, and uh, he took me to the Terry Mulholland no-hitter in 1990 which is one of the first games that I remember. Uh, I was very little. I was only about five years old. And um, it was really hot. It was like an August, mid-August day, except Saturday evening. And uh, we were just sitting there. I don't remember much of the game. We were sitting there in, right in uh, 
the the third baseline area. And I just remember that Gary Carter was the last player to bat, and he was pinch hitter for the Giants. And this was at the tail end of Carter's career. And uh, I was just scared out of my mind that Carter was going to get a hit because he just looked like a big guy who was going to get a hit. And, of course, mm-hmm. he, he lined out to Charlie Hayes, and Hayes, you know, saved the game, even though he gave up a, a – he threw a, he made a throwing error earlier in the game to make a perfect game go away. But it was amazing, you know. And that, and that, that I remember. And then, you know, Dad just took me to all these great Phillies games in my life and uh, mm-hmm. World Series games, playoff games, uh, you know, random games in June when the Phillies were already 20 games out of first place. That kind of stuff is what's uh, what I remember. So it's it's really cool to to be able to you know give something back. I was able to take my dad to a Father's Day game a couple years ago. Uh, my wife and I took him, and uh, it was actually one of the very few times the Phillies had won in 2015. Adam Morgan got his first major league win. So uh, wow. yeah, what do you know? But <laughs> have you been able to treat your dad to any games yourself? Um. No, I mean usually they they, uh, they do the treating for me, but you okay. know I I do other things for them for for my dad and also my uncle who is a, a big part of my life who I I think of as my second father, but um, a second father figure. But you know now we we you know we do things for each other, uh, but they they mostly do the the treating to the baseball games. Uh, that's kind of the the pastime. Gotcha. Well, well try to try to do something for them. Uh, take them to a ball game one day. It's kind of cool when 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 you take your dad for the first time and they're like, oh, I can't believe you're taking me. So it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, well, Corey, thanks for coming on to talk about some dad stuff, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thank you for having me on, Tim. My thanks to Corey Sharp for coming on the podcast today. Also to Mitchell Nathanson for sharing his research and reporting and writing about Dick Allen with us. Really great source to have. You should check out all of his works. You can find it wherever books are sold, as he said in the podcast. Also, thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. As I said in the open, please, if you have music that you want to share with us and want to have in the theme or the bumpers, please let me know, Tim at philliesnation.com, or you can tweet me at Timothy Malcolm or at philliesnation. Either way is totally fine. The Phillies Nation podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. As far as the Phillies are concerned this week, there is a very tough four-gamer coming up with the Red Sox. They're going to Boston for two, then back at home for two. Can we expect a win? I don't know if we can at this point. The only pitcher I think, uh, well, there's two pitchers with the Phillies who are actually I feel confident enough about one is Ben Lively, although it's his like his third start coming up. So let's be honest, how how really confident can we feel? And then Aaron Nola, who was kind of hit, you know, made a really bad pitch against the Cardinals on Sunday, and uh, was 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 victimized for that, and he couldn't go past five innings. So what, what I mean, what do we expect anymore, right? But maybe we can get something. I mean, Nola's not supposed to pitch against Boston, but maybe we can get a win or two out of this. Now we're back at the point where we could just hope get a hope to get a win in a four game series. <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. Well, at least we do have what's going on in the minor leagues, and Lehigh Valley is performing well. So we're gonna hold on that as far as we can for as long as we can until we can't no more. For the Phillies Nation podcast, I am Tim Malcolm. We will see you next week.